Well, we are nearing the conclusion of a study that we started also in June, uh, focusing on really the, the origins and where we came from as a Southern Baptist church or Southern Baptist congregation. So tonight I want to pick that up and we're going to talk a little more about it. Um, we have seen in our conversations, we've looked at a lot of details, a lot of, a lot of facts, but, but some of the things I hope that you have heard that you will take away from these studies about the origins of Southern Baptists is that, is that our origins are rooted in a series of supernatural movements of God. They really are. That Southern Baptists as we know them today did not exist until the First Great Awakening. And out of that First Great Awakening in 1740, which was a move of God in the American colonies that resulted in roughly 20% of the population coming to know Christ. And as a consequence of that, there, was, there were some people who were in older established churches that, that didn't teach about the new birth, who were born again. And the result of that is that some of those folks coming out uh, became Baptists. They were called separate Baptists. But they were a kind of Baptist that had not existed before. There were some existing Baptists, but they weren't growing. There were some Baptists that were probably 100 years older, but they had not started new new churches, and they were going nowhere fast, just going nowhere. But this new group was birthed, and they settled in a place in North Carolina, Sandy Creek, North Carolina. And within a generation, they had started hundreds of churches, and they started the first Baptist congregations across the South, in South Carolina, first church, Georgia, first church, uh, what would become Alabama and Mississippi, the first churches, Tennessee and Kentucky, the very first churches. And they, they preached and taught with a fire and a zeal that the other Baptists had not seen before. And so there were a succession of revivals in early American history. There was the First Great Awakening and what's so-called the Second Great Awakening in 1806. And out of that revival came our mission focus. Uh, the very first missionaries that left American soil were a product of that revival at Williams College in Northwest Massachusetts in 1806. As a group of young men came out of that, they became burdened for the lost masses in the world. And in 1812, they started the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, and they worked together, sent the first five missionaries to leave American soil across the ocean to go to Burma and India and places like that. Two of those five, they were all congregational missionaries, congregational churches. And two of those five on board ship were studying the writings of a Baptist named William Carey. And in the course of, of reading what he wrote about baptism and about believers' baptism, they became convinced that as congregationalists, they were in error, and they became Baptists on board ship. Now, they had a real problem, because they had been funded and sent by congregational churches, but they weren't sent by Baptist churches. And so, uh, the two men were Adoniram Judson and Luther Rice. When they arrived in, in uh, India and Burma, I jokingly say they flipped a coin to decide who would come back. But Luther Rice came back, and he began, began fundraising among Baptist churches. And those Baptist churches began to work together to send missionaries overseas. And they met every three years in what was called the Triennial Convention. In 1845, Southern Baptists were formed out of that group over an argument concerning slavery and who could be a slave uh, could you be a missionary and also be a slave owner in your origin? And Southern Baptists, uh, hard-headed as they were, said, 
they said, we don't like the attitude of the abolitionists in the north. And, and so Southern Baptists were birthed in an argument over missions, but it was an argument over slavery. And that's part of one of the darker elements of our past. Uh, we since, long since renounced slavery, long since sought forgiveness for uh, a racial cloud that, that hung over us. But that was our beginning. And, uh, but there have been subsequent revivals. There was one in 1858. There was another in 1904, 1906. There was another in the middle of the 20th century in 1945 to about 1955. And each time, Southern Baptists were right in the thick of it. And, and churches were started, more missionaries were appointed, more resources were released. And so we have a rich heritage of missions and evangelism. But something else was happening about the same time, and that brings me to what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about a 30-year period of time from 1960 to 1990 that now is called the conservative resurgence of the Southern Baptist Convention. Conservative resurgence. As I've shared my testimony, I became a Christian in the late 1970s, uh, just outside Dayton, Ohio, Fairborn, Ohio. And my dad was stationed there as, a, as an officer in the Air Force, and I had been raised in a Roman Catholic tradition. Thought I would be a priest one day. I was an altar boy and, and uh, spent time at a Vincentian seminary and thought I would do that one day. But I went to a, a regular public high school, and it was there that I met some friends, and through those relationships, I heard the gospel or the good news of Jesus for the first time. And in 1978, I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and he, he changed my life, uh, radically changed my life. Uh, before I was saved, I thought I would go into engineering, and in fact, I continued that trajectory, went to the University of Texas in Austin, and started uh, at the College of Engineering there. But, but really quickly, my heart shifted, and my desire was to preach and to, to be involved in churches. And so I began to do that, and the church licensed me, and then uh, I just was immersed in the campus ministries at the University of Texas and, uh, and became part of a church there, Hyde Park Baptist Church, and there was a pastor there named Ralph Smith. And... And I didn't know any better. I didn't know that at that time he was a significant leader among Southern Baptists in many respects in this thing called the conservative resurgence. I didn't know that. He was just my pastor. And so he would preach, and after church I'd pummel him with about 20 questions about what he had preached. And I, I wore him out. But he loved me for it. And, um, and, and he was gracious to me as a, as a young Christ follower. I hadn't even been a Christian but about a year. I transferred to a small Southern Baptist school in North Mississippi, a Blue Mountain College. It was a girls' school, all-girls school, except in the uh, early 60s, the uh, Mississippi Baptist Convention forced Blue Mountain College to integrate and to allow men to attend who were preacher boys. And so um, the preacher boys, we couldn't participate in sports. We, we had to sit in the back, couldn't ask questions. It was almost that bad. And then we, we had to live off campus. We couldn't live on campus. We lived in antebellum homes scattered around the community. And a lot, of, a lot of fond memories, a lot of great stories. But in that transition, in the summer of 1980, I joined Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. At that time, at the older location downtown, when you joined the church, they lined up all the new people who had joined at the church. And Dr. Rogers, Adrian Rogers, would walk down the line and he would take each person by the hand and, um, 
And uh, the associate pastor would say, Don Pusick's here today and he's joining our church, transferring his letter from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Dr. Rogers said, oh, you're, you're, you have been with Ralph Smith. He's a good friend of mine. And then he'd look you in the eye and he would say, and you're standing in front of 5,000 people, and he would look you in the eye and he would say, Don, do you know that you know that you're saved? And you'd have to answer in front of everybody. I didn't know it, but that summer of 1980, Dr. Rogers was coming off of his first term as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Very significant moment, as we'll see in just a few moments. And, um, and so my entire walk with God with the people called Southern Baptists, who are Christians who are Southern Baptists, was during this period of time. And so I slowly became aware of what was happening. And, um, and of course, in hindsight, you can understand things even better. In the latter part of the 1800s, affecting many different denominations, there was a new view of Scripture that was coming in. It treated Scripture as any ordinary book treated the stories of the Old Testament as myths. And you had to, to take apart those myths to get to the truth. And that spiritual truth is being conveyed through these mythological stories. And so, and so it was undermining a literal understanding of the Scripture. And that started in the late 1800s. So there were a series of controversies as this impacted Southern Baptists. It affected a lot of denominations, particularly Northern Baptists. And the reaction of certain pastors in the North was what came to be called the fundamentalist movement, as pastors said, this is not right, and they began to stand on what they believed were the fundamentals of faith. And uh, different denominations of Baptists were forged as they pulled away from Northern Baptists, but Southern Baptists were being affected too. There were, there were four, at least four significant theological controversies in the Southern Baptist Convention that fed into the resurgence. The toy controversy was at the end of the 1800s. He was a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He had studied overseas in Germany and came back with his head filled with all these notions that the Bible could not be taken literally or historically to be treated as accurate. He was also at one time the fiance of Lottie Moon. She made the decision not to marry him and go to China. One of the, the evolution controversy of the 1920s some of you will remember the, um, the court case, famous court case that took place in Tennessee where evolution was essentially put on trial because public schools, some public school teacher was wanting to teach evolution in a public school and he was being challenged about that. And so there was a national controversy about that. That affected Southern Baptists. Out of that came the first expression of Baptist teaching as Southern Baptists and it's called the Baptist faith and message. It was a series of basic beliefs of what we believe about God. And embedded in that older 1925 version of the Baptist faith and message, you'll see some very strong wording where Southern Baptists took a stand on creation as opposed to evolution. The Genesis commentary controversies erupted in the 1960s. We're going to look at that more closely in just a moment. And then the fourth section came right on the heels of that, and it was the battle over inerrancy. Are we going to believe that the Bible has errors? Or are we going to teach it as error-free? Are we going to teach it as accurate and true? Or are we going to teach it as fallible with mistakes and errors? 
Uh, this affected Southern Baptists. A lot of our seminaries, there were professors that had also studied abroad, studied overseas. Their minds had been filled with these academic perspectives of the Bible, and they began teaching in Southern Baptist seminaries from about the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and by the early 60s, it was pretty prominent. And so you had your rank-and-file Southern Baptists who were in churches like Wynn Baptist Church and pastors pastoring those churches who taught the Bible a certain way. Somebody would get saved in the church. Somebody would feel called to ministry in the church. They would send that young person off to seminary. They would study under those professors, and they would come back not believing anything the pastor had taught them growing up. And so it created very real tension. This was not hypothetical. This was a real problem for Baptist pastors where do I send the young people who feel called to ministry to study if I can't send them to these particular schools? So there was a common thread. Each controversy was over the relationship of what was called higher criticism to the full truthfulness of the biblical text. Higher criticism simply means they approach the scripture as a work of literature, not as an expression of God's heart, not as the word of God that, that was breathed by God. They didn't approach it that way. They approached it as a work of literature, that, that every book, every teaching had a context to it in its historical setting, and we need to go back and study that and take it apart and, and really find out what was going on. And uh, it tended to undermine genuine faith. The first part of this that, that really woke Southern Baptists up occurred in 1961 when our publishing house, Broadman Publishing, published a book called The Message of Genesis by a professor from Midwestern Seminary in 1961. Uh, His name was Ralph Elliott, and it was called The Message of Genesis. In The Message of Genesis, he put out some ideas that were very controversial at the time. The possibility of the day-age theory for uh, creation, that those were not literal 24-hour periods described in the book of Genesis, that each of those days actually could represent a period of evolution. Go ahead and advance to the next slide. Day-age theory, that there were seven days of creation and that day one could be millions of years, day two could be millions of years, trying to harmonize what the Bible says in Genesis about how everything got here with the theory of evolution. He also said Adam may not refer to one individual that Adam may simply be representative of the process of evolution whereby human beings were formed. Adam not being one individual, however, poses a real problem when you begin reading the book of Romans and what the Apostle Paul taught. He says, through one man, sin entered the world and all died and all were condemned. And, and he, he's speaking of Adam, but he's also drawing a comparison because he says, through one man, Christ, uh, the possibility came that all might live. And so, and so Paul clearly believed in a literal Adam. In fact, he constructed his teaching around the existence of a literal Adam. He said that Noah's flood was merely local, not universal, but that's not what Jesus believed. If you go into the Gospels, you see that Jesus believed in a literal Noah and a literal flood that was global in extent. That Abraham did not actually hear God instruct him to sacrifice Isaac. And so and so you can see some of those ideas in his work. Well, there's a reaction, a conservative reaction. The pastor of First Baptist Church of Houston, K. Owen White, um, wrote a book or a booklet called Death in the Pot. And it's based on 2 Kings 4, chapter 4, verse 40. You can read that 
yourself, but it happened when something went in the pot that the prophets were eating and they complained to Elijah and said, this is, there's death in the pot. I mean, that's the language that's there. It's killing the prophets. It's killing the leadership of God. And so using that analogy, he said, this stuff that's being taught is death in the pot. It's killing the prophets of God. It's undermining the preaching and teaching. And that book was printed and sent it all out, sent out and it was sent to uh, Baptist State Papers. He said, the book in question referring to Eliot's book on Genesis, is poison. So, how did things unfold? Well, the Sunday School Board agreed not to publish the second edition. In 1962, Eliot was dismissed from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is located in Kansas City, one of six seminaries that we support through our giving, through the cooperative program. He was dismissed not for heresy, but for insubordination, because he refused to stop publishing his Genesis commentary. He said, well, if they won't publish it as Southern Baptist, I'll get it published somewhere else. And that's what he did, and he lost his job. He eventually became active in the American Baptist Convention, which was more receptive to his theology. Well, one of the results of this is that uh, all the state convention presidents got together, and in 1963, there was a revision of the Baptist faith and message from 1925. And just as that statement in 1925 was aimed at stressing the truthfulness of the Genesis account of creation, so the revision in 1963 was intended to stress the truthfulness of Scripture, that the, the reliability of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, that it's without error. And, um, and so that occurred uh, through a process in 1962. It was chaired by Herschel Hobbs, who was pastor of First Baptist Church of Oklahoma City, by the way, if you ever find a commentary by Herschel Hobbs, get it, keep it, hang on to it. Great Bible teaching, great uh, words that he will, he will have for you. Um, and so that was one of the responses. But then something else happened. There's a second part to the Genesis commentary, uh, uh, controversy. Uh, the Baptist Sunday School Board, which is what Lifeway used to be called, the Baptist Sunday School Board decided to publish a set of commentaries that pastors and lay leaders could use, the Brahman commentary. And the first one they were going to publish was the book of Genesis, a commentary on Genesis. And it was published in 1969, written by a Welsh Baptist from England and published by Brahman Press. Well, guess what? Uh, had some of the same theological teachings in it that were in that other commentary. Uh, he believed in what was called the JEDP theory. I've talked about that before, but that is the, one of the beliefs that was introduced in Germany, and it said that Moses didn't write Genesis, Moses didn't write Exodus, Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Moses didn't do that. Those books weren't even written during the time of Moses. They were written during the time of exile. You had priests and uh, scholars who got together and they pieced together these different writings and different beliefs about the origins of the Jewish people. And if you read very carefully through Genesis, you read very carefully through Exodus, you can tell when Jay's writing. They don't know their names, they just gave them letters. So you can tell when Jay's writing, you can tell when E's writing, you can tell when P's writing, and you can tell when D's writing. And so about four different people wrote the first five books of the Bible, according to that particular commentary. So he believed in the historical critical method of interpretation, and like Eliot, he questioned God's command to Abraham to kill Isaac. Well, got another reaction. Pastors and leaders were infuriated. 
1970, uh, Dr. Gwen Turner moved to withdraw the commentary and that it be rewritten, quote, with due consideration of the conservative viewpoint. I knew Gwen Turner. Uh, he pastored in the same association that I was in in Los Angeles in the 1980s, got to know him, precious man of God, but he actually made the motion to withdraw that commentary. Uh, 1968, uh, W.A. Criswell, who was right in the thick of all of that, pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, wrote a book called Why I Preach That the Bible is Literally True, also published by Broadband Press, had a tremendous effect on Baptist pastors, especially those who might be on the fence wavering. So should we accept these academic, new academic ideas about the Bible or should we hold up to our traditional viewpoint? There were other influences that were entered the mix. There was a book called The Battle for the Bible by a man named Harold Lenzel. He was one of the founding professors at Fuller Theological Seminary in Southern California. Uh, Dr. Lenzel documented how denomination, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, denomination after denomination had come under the influence of liberal teaching in their seminaries. And as a consequence of that liberal teaching in their seminaries, they had lost all historic Christian doctrine and were taking positions that were actually opposed to some of the key teachings of Scripture. And he documented that, and it was like a wake-up call, again, for Southern Baptists saying, hey, this is how it happens. It starts in the schools, and if we don't address it in the schools, if we don't address it in the seminaries, eventually we will go the way of these other denominations. We will be affected by it. And so that was the premise of his book. Clark Pinnock was a professor at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. He began to make the argument that liberal professors should just be dismissed. And, and so that talk, that conversation began. Uh, another book that was written about this time, uh, actually a little later in 1980, by Tom Nettles and, and uh, Rush... Um, my mind's going blank. Anyway, his last name was Bush. He's passed away now. The Baptist in the Bible. One of the arguments that um, opponents to the, the professors would make, one of the arguments that they would make is, look, this, this thing of Baptists standing on the Bible is the Word of God. This is a new development in our history. That we have not always been that concerned about the makeup or the nature of Scripture. And so, and so you are just missing it by putting so much focus on this. And what Dr. Nettles, Dr. Bush did as they come back and they documented going back to the very beginnings of every strand of Baptist that you can find and every one of them took the position that the Bible is our sole authority and our, and our rule for our faith. That we believe it is the Word of God, breathed by God, inspired by God, contains everything we need to know on this side of heaven about God and it is true. And it has no mistakes in it, no errors in it that we need to... Um, to correct or reconcile. Also in 1976, a master's degree student, a master divinity student named Noel Wesley Hollifield was working on his MDiv at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And as part of his master's thesis, he, he made an observation that the longer you stayed in school at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the longer you stayed at Southern Seminary, the less you believed about God that your belief system was being undermined. That business of pastors sending young people off to seminaries and finding them coming back but not believing what they were raised to, to believe, the truth of Scripture, 
was a real phenomenon. And what he, he found as he surveyed other Master Divinity students, he asked their response to this statement. Jesus is the divine Son of God, and I have no doubts about it. He found that 87% of first-year students believe that. But by the time they graduated two years later, only 63% believe that. I personally knew a, a friend, a pastor, who went through that experience. When, when I first knew of him in Mississippi, he would, on Saturday, for fun, he would get on his bicycle instead of studying. He'd get on his bicycle, he'd ride through the neighborhood, he'd knock on doors, and he would tell people about Jesus. He was, he was an evangelist at heart. Loved the Lord, loved to tell people about him. He went to school, went to Southern Seminary. He got so confused. He was filled with so much doubt. He didn't know what was true in the Bible, what wasn't, what wasn't true in the Bible. He came out so confused. When I met that man, knew that man, he was broken. I mean, it messed with his head, messed with his heart. And he, he didn't know what he believed. And, and he continued to pastor, but he was one of the most miserable believers I've known because he didn't know what he believed. And um, so he was actually affected by that experience. In 1981, they took that young man's master's thesis, condensed it to a little booklet, and they sent it out. Um, to talk about the need for reform. Other reactions. Instead of the six seminaries, if those seminaries aren't sound, if they aren't teaching the Word of God, people got together and said, we'll just start some new seminaries. And so two particular schools stand out. One was Criswell Institute of Biblical Studies. Today it's Criswell Bible College in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And as you can imagine, that was started under the watchful eye, W.A. Criswell. It was led by a man named Paige Patterson. And, and it became a safe haven for a place to send students to study the Scripture. Uh, another seminary was started. It says 1972 Memphis, Tennessee, Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary. Any of y'all heard of that one? And uh, when that school started, what you need to know is it originally started in Little Rock, Arkansas. And Dr. Rogers was the one that said, y'all come over here and we'll, we'll provide a place for you. And, um, but that seminary was started that doesn't receive any support to this day from the cooperative program. It's funded completely by donations and by tuition fees, but it has continued to take that position of being a place where it is a safe place to study the Word of God of professors who believe it is the Word of God. Now, um, the date 1967 sticks out for a lot of people when you talk about the history of the conservative resurgence because in New Orleans, Louisiana, Cafe Du Monde. Anybody been there? Anybody know what a beignet is? It's hard to eat one without getting white powder all over you. I love beignets. But anyway, a couple of men met there, Paige Patterson and a judge uh, named Paul Pressler, met there, and supposedly this is part of the lore, Southern Baptist uh, lore, is that they determined at that point what would be necessary logistically for Southern Baptist leaders essentially to take control back of their own institutions and assure that those institutions were following um, the basic doctrinal beliefs of most Southern Baptists. So the resurgence was born with all those influences and all those different events taking place. The purpose was to return the Southern Baptist Convention to its conservative roots. The issue was inerrancy. 
Inerrancy is a way of saying that the Bible, as it was originally written in the original documents, which we don't have, by the way, but as it was originally penned in the original documents, was written without error. And it has no mistakes. And, And that was the position. That was sort of the battle cry. We believe in inerrancy. We believe in infallibility. Uh, the belief that the original manuscripts were without error, that the Bible's true religiously, scientifically, historically, and geographically. Sometimes those professors would say, well, you can study the Bible for spiritual truth, but don't look to it for historical accuracy. Don't look to it for geographical accuracy. Um, don't look at it for those things. But, but these pastors and these leaders were saying we can trust it. So they had to have a plan. How does this happen? The conservative resurgence. Um, the agencies, we have six seminaries, we have several agencies and institutions. Every one of them has a board of trustees. And with any institution, a board of trustees, as the name implies, they are being trusted to, to steer the ship, to make sure that that institution reflects the uh, guiding purpose for its existence, why it came into being. They're supposed to keep it on course. And they're required to do that by law, by the way. They really are. It's a legal thing for corporations. And so these trustees obviously were in a position to make a difference. They, could, they, they approved the hire of a particular professor. They approved the appointment of a particular president over the institution. And so the key was to trade out the trustees. If you could get new trustees, then you could get better professors and better leadership in the institutions. Trustees were nominated by a committee on nominations. The committee on nominations was made up of rank-and-file Southern Baptists who were elected to serve, and what they did was fill the vacancies on those trustee boards for the seminaries and for the other institutions, Foreign Mission Board, Home Mission Board. Um, The committee on nominations, however, was put together by the committee on committees, another committee that was appointed by the president. So if I'm elected president, this is 2018, if I'm elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention, I, won't, I haven't been, a year from now, I will appoint a committee on committees. And that's in 2019. They will make a decision as to who's going to serve on the committee on nominations. That committee on nominations works through the rest of 2019. And in 2020, they make a recommendation to the Southern Baptist Convention. Here's all the trustees that we're recommending to fill the vacancies. 2020. 2020, those trustees get elected for a four-year term, and typically that's renewed for another four-year term. They serve for eight years. So it's not until 2020, 2021, that that president, elected in 2018, begins to have any effect at all on the institution. Does that make sense? There's a whole daisy chain of things that has to happen. So what do you have to do if you're a rank-and-file Southern Baptist, you want to change the institution? You have to keep electing presidents, conservative presidents. That's exactly what they did. It began in 1979 with the election of Adrian Rogers, who was elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Following him, there were, and so that summer of 1980, uh, Dr. Rogers, when I joined that church, was coming off of his first term as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He began that. Uh, Other presidents followed, Bailey Smith, Jimmy Draper, Charles Stanley, Adrian Rogers served again, and Jerry Vines and Morris Chapman. And um, they, uh, they were elected and elected and elected. Bailey Smith was brother-in-law to the Eliff brothers. Bill Eliff pastors a church here in, in uh, Arkansas. Um, 
Tom Ella pastored uh, First Baptist Dell City, Oklahoma for years and years. Uh, Jimmy Draper became president of Lifeway and was my boss for, for some years and has been a friend. And then there's Charles Stanley, uh, First Baptist Atlanta. Uh, Jerry Vines, pastor at First Baptist Jacksonville. Morris Chapman um, in um, Wichita Falls. And then later he served as well. Now, as they were electing those conservative presidents, the, the, there was a group in Baptist life that said, we don't like the direction of this. And we're not necessarily liberal in orientation. We don't necessarily agree with those professors, but we don't like this. This is too political. We don't, we don't like this behavior. And so they put up some opposition. Moderate candidates include people like Richard Jackson, who's pastor of a large church, North Phoenix Baptist Church, baptized when he was pastor there, they baptized more people than any other church in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Duke McCall was president of Southern Seminary. Winfred Moore, First Baptist Amarillo. Daniel Vessel, First Baptist Church Midland. What I want you to hear me say about those men is that theologically, those men were conservative. But they were considered moderate in that they did not want to take people's jobs away. They had sat under some of those professors, and although they disagreed with them, they liked them. And they cared for them, and they didn't want to see them hurt. So there were high feelings through all of that. Um, there was a moderate reaction. Other, this group formed an alternative pastors conference called the Forum in 1984. Uh, I attended both just to see what was happening and heard a lot of anger, a lot of rancor, a lot of ridicule in both meetings. It was intense. The Alliance of Baptists formed in 1987, and this was basically a group of people who were on their way out of Southern Baptist life. They said, we don't like this conservative teaching, and they truly were liberal in their theology, and they said, we just want to exit. And so that was happening in 1987. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship was formed in 1991. Uh, affectionately known as the Cry Baby Fellowship. The initials are CBF. Anyway, um, they were frustrated with the conservative leadership, um, and so they tried to remain as a fellowship. Uh, their first uh, leader, president, a man named Daniel Vestal, was uh, conservative again in his theology, and honestly, these dear people were walking a theological tightrope. They were many times themselves conservative, but they wanted to maintain a historic openness to the priesthood of the believer, that you are responsible for God for what you believe. They wanted to maintain some measure of academic freedom. And in their minds, the priesthood of the believer and academic freedom were really important. The problem is that, um, that under this banner of soul liberty, uh, it became a hideout for people with true liberal theology. And so they have still struggled with that to this day. So let me just quickly call attention, uh, we're not going to read all this, but some of the changes that took place. Uh, probably the most liberal seminaries at the time were Southern and Southeastern. In 1987, the president of Southeastern resigned. Uh, ultimately, Paige Patterson became president there. At Southern Seminary in 1992, Roy Honeycutt resigned and Al Mohler became president. Uh, Al Mohler is a high Calvinist and also a conservative. Southern Seminary is the place to go if you want to study um, to be a Baptist minister from a Calvinist point of view. Uh, 
That is unashamedly their, their posture. 60% of the faculty left when he became president. 60%. And I'm not saying that they were all theologically liberal, but many, many were. Uh, he's also a master of media, radio, TV, and blogging. Just ask him. Um, also at Southwestern Theological Seminary, uh, 1994, Russell Dilday was fired and let go. Another man that I know personally, and he is a conservative in his theology, but not in his administration. And so Ken Hemphill served briefly, but then eventually Paige Patterson became president there. New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, where, where I've spent a lot of time, happy to say, had no real theological issues to speak of. Landrum Level had been president there. His son is a friend of mine, pastors First Baptist Church Millington. Uh, David Level, just across the river, and um, uh, godly men, uh, love the Lord. In 1996, Chuck Kelly became president there, continues to be president there to this day, has a heart of an evangelist. Um, there were other agencies. The Baptist Joint Committee on Public Affairs was our agency in Washington that spoke for us on matters of ethics and legislation, and it seemed like anything that Southern Baptists opposed, they supported. And anything we supported, they opposed. And so ultimately, Southern Baptists defunded them and formed ultimately the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission to replace that, and uh, that agency continues to this day. The Sunday School Board, um, the one that was publishing those commentaries, uh, ultimately Jimmy Draper became president there, and he worked hard to make sure that Lifeway was conservative in, in all their products, and all the work that they did. He tried very hard to purchase the New American Standard version of the Bible to get the rights for that. He was not able to do that. So he worked and pulled together some great scholars and created the Christian Standard Bible, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is Lifeway's product. Uh, they own that. Uh, he also helped launch the New American Commentary, which long since has replaced the Brahman commentary and all of those volumes I can recommend. Um, they're a great resource for the study of God's Word. Uh, the Foreign Mission Board was led by a man named Keith Parks. Keith Parks was a strong conservative, a strong leader, but did not like the resurgence. Again, it was a case where you had people that tried to walk the fence and it was almost impossible. He ultimately left and became essentially the Foreign Mission Leader for the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. In 1993, Jerry Rankin was called as president. He's a native Mississippian. Uh, his mother used to take me home for lunch when I was a youth pastor in her church, Pansy Rankin. And um, he was a missionary in Indonesia when a revival took place there in the 1960s. And he saw a wonderful move of God there. And uh, during that experience with the presence of God, he had an encounter where he spoke in tongues. He had a charismatic experience of his own. Uh, but he became president of the Foreign Mission Board and later became the International Mission Board. And he was often criticized because of his openness to the personal work of the Holy Spirit. But yet, he was conservative. At the Home Mission Board, a man named William Tanner, who was president, resigned. And um, I served at the Home Mission Board or with the Home Mission Board under his original leadership. Uh, in 1987, Larry Lewis was elected president. And then a series of presidents, Bob Rec uh, Record and Jeff Hammond, uh, both resigned with clouds over their administration because of mishandlings of funds 
and uh, mismanagement. But since 2010, Kevin Ezell has been president and they have operated on an even kill. Um, the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention was led by a man named Porter Ruth. The executive committee is based in Nashville and sort of oversees all the work we do as Southern Baptists. They distribute the money that we send them uh, from the cooperative program. And so Morris Chapman in 1992 became president and CEO. He served until 2010. Um, my wife served on the executive committee for a period of time and had interactions with uh, Dr. Chapman. He's a good man. Two things left I want to call attention to, and then I'm going to open it up for some questions. Reasons for success of the conservative resurgence. When Harold Lindzell wrote his book, Battle for the Bible, it was, it was a story after story of denominations that basically went liberal in their theology, and the conservatives had to leave and go form a new group. In each story in that book, Battle for the Bible, those, those liberal denominations took over, and the conservatives lost institutions, lost resources, lost things that had happened. The Southern Baptist resurgence, the conservative resurgence, was the first time that a major denomination had essentially turned back to its roots, turned back to its commitment to uh, its doctrinal moorings. And so it was remarkable. So what were some of the reasons? One of the reasons, I'm going to say, is the rhetoric. Uh, it was led by a bunch of preachers who spoke well, and they used words well. And because they communicated well, in terms that the average person could understand, uh, they basically carried the day. They were better communicators. Um, conservatives, that's the second point, were better at contemporary forms of communication. They were just better at it. Uh, some of these professors teaching in a seminary, bless their hearts, they just put you to sleep. And um, uh, moderates, the people caught in the middle, were denominational loyalists when denominational loyalty was diminishing. A lot of these presidents that were elected during the period of the conservative resurgence, their churches gave very little to Southern Baptist work. They were large churches, but as a percentage of their, their receipts, they gave very little to the cooperative program. And they were criticized for that. But, but we had greater issues at stake. That was the mindset. And so it was more important that we have people who believe the Bible than people who give to the denomination. And so the moderates were denominational loyalists. Uh, the moderate coalition lacked consensus and direction. They, were, they had all kinds of different ideas. They never were unified. And then conservatives allied themselves with the Christian right and with the national political agenda. Um, we were opposed to abortion, still are. Uh, we were opposed to uh, same-sex marriage, still are. Uh, we were opposed to all the things that in that day and time uh, were represented by conservative political leaders as well, people like Ronald Reagan and George Bush and people like that. I'm not endorsing that, I'm just saying it was a fact. So the conservative resurgence in Baptist life paralleled a conservative resurgence in the politics of our country. In 1989, I wrote a letter to J.I. Packer. Anybody have ever heard of J.I. Packer? wrote a book called Knowing God in the early 70s. J.I. Packer is an Anglican, member of the Church of England. Saw firsthand how the Church of England was infected with a lot of liberal theology. Ultimately, he left England, went to Western Canada, 
began teaching at Regent College, a very conservative school that catered to people with an Anglican background. They were, they were committed to the gospel, they were committed to the inerrancy of scripture, and Dr. Packard taught there for many, many years. He still lives there. I wrote him some questions, and some of the questions that I asked him in 1989 related to his view of what was happening in Southern Baptist life. And I just put that up on the screen as far as what he, what he said. He said, I'm not qualified to assess the SBC. And you've got to understand, in 1989, it was, for all intents and purposes, it was over. Now, a lot of changes came, but as far as leadership in the seminaries and the schools, it was over. He said, I'm not qualified to assess the SBC, save only to say that it's far too big for the convention to be a significant synod. And uh, he's talking about a different church order there. He said, I'm glad, as I imagine you are, that evangelicals have played the power game successfully within it, and that seminaries will become more conservative rather than more liberal. Again, that was remarkable. That had not happened in the previous hundred years of this kind of, kind of thing. Since everyone else has played the power game for decades, it's hypocritical to complain when evangelicals play it. But the life giver is the Holy Spirit, not the SBC. So I'll leave it at that. Do you have questions or comments? Something you'd like to ask or say? This point. Yep. Dr. Patterson, um, in, uh, the, I didn't talk about this because it's something I'm going to talk about next week, but in the past 30 years there have been a lot of other developments that have come out of the resurgence, and it has created concerns, and I'm going to share some of those next week. Uh, one of my concerns is that in our battle for doctrinal integrity, we have lost our missional integrity. We've lost our mission. Baptisms have declined and declined and declined. So while we were fighting for the truth, we were losing ground on evangelism. Um, Dr. Patterson's case, and with some other leaders, I could give a list, uh, there have been some issues in their past, and in some cases, uh, some of these men have been disgraced, have lost their positions of leadership. Um, in Dr. Patterson's case, he was accused of some things, mishandling a uh, sexual uh, event, crime at South on women, which were not just conservative, but probably went further than the average conservative would take it. Uh, his views on women, his views on women in ministry, when he became president at Southwestern Seminary, there was a there was a woman who taught Hebrew, a professor who taught Hebrew. She was extremely good at just teaching Hebrew. She wasn't there to um, teach theology. She wasn't teaching doctrine. She just taught Hebrew. He let her go because she was a woman. And so because of his, his expanded view of the role of women, what they could and couldn't do, he has received a lot of criticism. But, but most recently, the issue at Southeastern Seminary while he was president there, where it appears that he may have mishandled a situation where a female student was raped by another student, uh, led to his dismissal and his resignation at Southwestern Seminary within the last couple months. Does that answer that question? 
Anything else? Question about this period in our history? We're, taught, we're thinking about where we came from and what's shaping Southern Baptist today, and this brings it a lot closer to where we are today. We're not quite there yet, but we're going to finish that up next week. Eric. Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He handles the JPD theory and some others really well. Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Um, his son and he have, have collaborated and there's a new expanded version of that book out. It's really thick, but they go into a lot of detail on it. That's probably the first one that comes to mind that would be generally accessible. Somebody else? Keith. Yes. There's a difference between higher criticism, which questions the accuracy of Scripture when it speaks of geography or history or any of those things. It can't be taken literally. There's a difference between higher criticism of the Bible and textual criticism. They didn't have printing presses when the Bible was first uh, written down. The Old Testament, it was copied by hand. And in the practice of the Hebrew copyists, they would take the old document that was worn out and they would typically discard it. And so they would copy and copy and copy and copy. Same thing with the New Testament. When the New Testament was written down. The original documents of Colossians, the original document of Ephesians, we don't have those. But they were copied and copied and copied and copied. And as they were copied, the, the copies that got copied the most uh, look identical or looked the most alike. And so these manuscript families formed. Uh, if I've got five copies and, and uh, only one of them gets copied a lot, well, you don't see the, uh, the other four copies. Why is that significant? Because when you copy something over and over again, sometimes you may leave out a definite article, like the word the, or an indefinite article, like the word a, you know, a cow, whatever. Uh, sometimes uh, there might be a, a number that's off just a little bit. Sometimes there might be a a different spelling for a word, a different spelling for a name. As you can imagine, there are little things that can creep into the copying of the text. Out of all of the copies that we have, and we have more manuscript copies for the New Testament, for example, for the Homer and uh, Homer's Iliad, there are only eight ancient extant copies of that book. And so if you're going to put together one that people are going to read and work from, you've got to take all eight of those, and there's a lot of variety and differences in them, and sort of harmonize them into one text. That's called textual criticism. You study the text, you put it together, and you give you the, the most likely correct copy. And so there's a whole science to that, and uh, it gets pretty involved. But, but with all the effort and all the energy that goes into putting together a Hebrew text and a Greek text that we will translate from, the differences across all the thousands of texts is only about 
And most of those differences, those 5% differences, are extremely minor. None of them, none of them affect uh, doctrine. None of them affect anything of substance in terms of what we believe or, or that the Bible teaches or what it says. And so, however, the professors, the liberal thinking academicians, would seize on that 5% and try to make a big deal about it. But it's really minor stuff. It really is minor stuff. So, Shakespeare, the works of Shakespeare, people who have studied those documents, there are very significant differences with his works across multiple copies of Hamlet. All kinds of different differences between texts. He sat down, would, would they perform it, and they'd perform it differently here than they did here. And, and we don't have a problem with Hamlet being that messed up. <laughs> but the Bible's nowhere near like that. We have extreme accuracy. Um, in terms of extant Greek manuscripts, we have something like 25,000 Greek manuscripts, most of them through a Byzantine tradition that, that our academicians work from when they put together a Greek text that then we translate from. So I don't know if that helps any, but there is a whole science there. There is a, a, a place for academic study of the, of the Greek text or the Hebrew text, but nothing that's going to cause heartburn for us in terms of what we believe and what we teach. I don't believe any generation can afford to not be vigilant about our doctrine. I think we need to take doctrine seriously. One of the reasons I did the words on Sunday morning that I've been doing this summer is because I don't believe we give enough attention to those words. That if you go off to school and study those words at a, at a school that isn't committed to the authority of the Scripture or the truthfulness of Scripture, they'll give you a different definition than what I gave you this morning for judgment. Some of it would even deny that there is a final judgment. So I, I do believe we, in terms of leadership, we have to be vigilant about our doctrine. And I believe that's a New Testament imperative. I don't think we can ever sit back and relax. Good stuff. One more. Yes, sir. No. No, all these, in the entire uh, battle for the Bible and Baptist life, Southern Baptist life, um, nobody believed that there was an English version that was perfectly inspired. Um, my Bible professor in school was so conservative, his shoes creaked. That's what I always say about him. Now, Doc Travis, he would, he would get all the preacher boys riled up every year because at some point in teaching, he would, he would just make the comment. He said, do you all know what the best Bible version is out there on the market? The very best translation, the best Bible version that's out there. And all those preacher boys would lean in, ready to get what Bible is absolutely the best. And uh, he would say, the one that you'll read. And there's a lot of truth to that. Because even, even a fairly weak translation, um, more you're going you're gonna to get incredible exposure to truth by reading it than if, by not reading it. Yes, sir? What are they expecting him to say, 1611? 
They might have been expecting that. The, um, yeah. the, the King James Version of the Bible is a beautiful text. Um, we could talk about it in great detail, but the Greek text that the King James was translated from um, was actually influenced by a man named Erasmus. And there are a few sections, even in that Greek text, where he got in a hurry, the Catholic leadership forced him to hurry up, and there are certain passages that he back-translated from Latin into Greek from the Vulgate. Now, that's just one example. Um, but I have great respect for it. For years, and I still do, uh, but for years I used the New King James Version. That's my preference. And I do that because I believe that the textual tradition underlying the King James and New King James and so forth, I have a lot more confidence in that textual tradition. So when we deal with those 5% questions, uh, much more comfortable with uh, that tradition of manuscripts. Now, we are gonna go way off the reservation if we talk about this much further. But, but let me just say that there, there is a lot to talk about when we talk about the Greek text underlying the English translation. There's a lot to talk about, it's important. But even, no matter where you land in your discussions on that subject, there's, there's not enough difference in those texts to say that there are errors in our Bible or inaccuracies concerning history or geography or science that should cause us to shake our faith or question what we believe. One of the things that excited me coming from a Roman Catholic tradition where I was pretty much told that the church is the sole and correct interpreter of the Bible. One of the things that excited me is that these people called Baptists said, we just want to do what the Bible says. Now I learned later that we have a lot of tradition we need to deal with too. But what excited me is they said, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside you and you take the scripture that God will lead you to his truth. And, and one of our Baptist historic beliefs is in the priesthood of the believer, that we, are, we have soul competency before God, that he, he provides that. I'm not saying we don't need teachers. I'm not saying we don't need pastors. I'm just saying that you with your Bible and the Holy Spirit, God will enable you to discern the truth that you need to follow him and to serve him. And that excited me as a new Christian. I thought, wow, that's great. I can tell you, as a young Christian reading the Bible, reading the book of Romans, discovering the, the doctrine of grace, discovering that I was saved not by works, but by God's gift to me, by trusting Jesus, he gave me a gift of salvation. I can remember times as a teenager, a new Christian, reading the book of Romans, and about every chapter, just stopping and weeping over that. So joyful over the gospel, the good news that I was reading for myself and that his Holy Spirit was applying to my heart. 
And so that, that is our position, not historically, but also biblically. Um, so I would encourage you that we need not get into some of the discussions that we get into. We do need to read our scripture because the Holy Spirit has something to say to us through it. Now, I'd be happy to, to visit, but we are well past time. Miss Alice? She's a good one. She went to Blue Mountain College. That's where I found her. So I'm going, I'm going to pray and I'm going to dismiss this. If you'd like to visit further, I'll, I'll be here. Thank you for your attentiveness. We will sort of finish this next week. What I'm going to do is bring us from 1990 to 2018. And, um, and then what I want to spend some time doing next week is really just talk about what I believe the future holds for Southern Baptist possibly. And some of the concerns and directions that we ought to look at as a church family concerning Southern Baptist.